Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Jaron Collins, assistant coach of the NBA's New Orleans Pelicans, and previous to that, a three-time NBA champion as an assistant coach with the Golden State Warriors. In this episode, Jaron speaks about the many coaches who influenced his championship journey, like Greg Hilliard at Harvard-Westlake, Mike Montgomery at Stanford, Jerry Sloan of the Utah Jazz, and Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors, each of them contributing a style and philosophy that Jaron incorporates into his coaching today. On a more personal level, Jaron also recounts when in 2013, Jaron's twin brother Jason came out to him as gay. Following this unexpected revelation, Jaron describes realizing two profound responsibilities. First, to love and support a vulnerable sibling, finally revealing his truth. And second, to more broadly and publicly become a gay ally. Jaron Collins on basketball, allyship, and coaching champions. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the Supporting Cast. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me. And we are starting out every interview really with here and now questions before we go back into your past, into your schooling, into your playing days and your previous coaching experiences in your case. Where are you right now? And I guess, where are the Pelicans right now in terms of their NBA season? So uh, we're a little over the halfway mark right now. I'm currently in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. We just had a, a two-game road trip. We've lost four in a row. Uh, a couple of our players are injured right now, so it's kind of the dog days of the season, just trying to get to the all-star break to recover, regroup, and, uh, and, and make a final push towards the end of the year. I believe that we currently sit fourth in a very crowded Western Conference. Um, yep. So we're doing okay, um, but we got to get back on the winning track and get some healthy bodies back into our lineup. So you're an assistant coach, obviously, with the New Orleans Pelicans. You guys, at one point a few weeks ago, were actually the number one seed in the Western Conference. What's the coaching challenge sort of right now? As you said, it's the dog days of the season. You've lost a few games. You have some injuries. What have you seen work? What do you think is sort of your challenge right now as a coach, literally, uh, at this part of the season for your team? I think that our approach um, always is important and remains the same and consistent with who we are. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is, you know, we lose a game. It's not a punishment practice the next day. Yeah. Um, we want to make sure that we are supporting our guys. We're uplifting our guys. We're holding each other accountable. But we are asking more of a lot of our younger players um, with some of our veterans and some of our, our main guys being out. We are asking some of our young guys to take a step forward and go out there and produce, compete, and, and get wins. Um, you know, obviously, tough part of the schedule, lost a couple games. But what's important for us, like I said, is we keep the gym the same, the energy the same. Um, yeah. We're uplifting one another and supporting one another. And we're going to get through this together. 
you know, a lot of people watch NBA games. There's the head coach who's sort of standing there and, and pacing and yelling at the refs or yelling at the players. And then there's a series of assistant coaches and you're an assistant coach. You've been an assistant coach for a long time. What is your specific role among the assistant coaches? Do you have a set of responsibilities that are different than, say, another assistant coach on the team? Yes. So I am currently the lead assistant coach, meaning if hmm. for whatever reason, Willie, uh, our head coach, Coach Green, were not able to uh, coach the game, I would be up, next man up. Um, hmm. Having said that, my responsibilities uh, specifically, um, I'm in charge of the defense. So I am essentially the defensive coordinator. Um, I've held that position before um, right. when I was with the uh, Golden State Warriors as well. And then we also, every coach uh, does player development as well. So I'm uh, responsible for working with a specific player on our team, Billy Hernan Gomez. So there are people that each coach is responsible for working with and developing and also uh, just check in with all the rest of the staff to make sure that we are all functioning at a high level and remaining connected. You mentioned that you were an assistant coach with the Golden State Warriors for a number of years. You won three championships uh, <laughs> in Golden State, which is incredible. That's a team by the end who was used to winning, knew how to win, had been in the playoffs, knew what it took to win those championships. Now you're with a younger team. You know, before you were Steph Curry, now you're someone like Zion Williamson. What's the challenge now? What experience do you bring that you try to impart to a young team? Not a team that's, okay, we've been here before, we know what we're doing, we know how hard it is, but a team that's never been there before, that's never been a one seed in the Western Conference. What new challenges does that present to a coach like you? The biggest thing is that there's no skipping steps. You know what I mean? There's no mm. like, um, you know, you, all of a sudden, we're going to be this great team. There's a process and a journey that you have to go through and yeah. you, you got to put the work in. You know, we play a lot of games back to backs and four games in five days and um, our schedule can get kind of crazy. So a lot of the attention to detail is through film work, through our computers and taking through walkthroughs and making sure guys are dialed in. So and then for the individual, it's about, you know, the fundamentals of the game. It always comes back to that, making sure guys are getting their shots up. They're playing with pace. Um, they're doing things with a purpose. And at the end of the day, too, accountability is huge. Mm -hmm. So from, from the players holding each other accountable, us as coaches um, holding the players accountable, because if you want to be great, it can't just come from the coaches demanding it from the players. The players got to demand it from themselves and from each other. And that's when, I, when, I, when I've seen on championship teams, when you have – vocal leaders like Draymond Green or yeah. or Steph Curry or somebody stepping up and, and speaking. It, it, ha it has to come from the players as well, that buy-in. So that's been something that, um, that has been a pleasure to be around and see the process and the steps from CJ McCollum to Garrett Temple, um, Larry Nance, our, our, our veterans, speaking truths to the group so that we can get to where we want to get to. So now I want to talk to, a little bit before we go back in time. There's sort of the professional part of basketball, which we're talking about now and the coaching that you're doing with your team. There's also the personal part of being a coach. You know, your family lives in LA. You are a, a Los Angeles guy. Your family lives in LA. Uh, you're not only a Harvard Westlake alum, you're now a Harvard Westlake parent. Uh, your daughter is at the school. Can you talk a little bit about just the challenge of, of living far away during the season and what you and Elsa and your family do to, to try to kind of make that work? First and foremost, I have a rock star wife, and my wife Elsa is um, spectacular, phenomenal, all of those words. 
Um, That's true, the by the way. That is a fact. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> because of the difficulties, obviously, with me um, being in New Orleans and her holding it down there in Los Angeles um, with our children. We have a lot of support, both grandparents, my, my, my mother-in-law, my parents are there to support as well. But there, it definitely presents its challenges. The technology has definitely helped. Yeah. You know, so as far as FaceTiming and group Zooms and family meetings and all the stuff that the technology has definitely helped. But uh, it definitely has its challenges um, being away for large chunks of time. But we make it work. And it's, there's a lot of sacrifice involved. So let's get to not just your daughter's Harvard Westlake experience, but your Harvard Westlake experience. I know that you and your brother bounced around to different schools before coming to Harvard Westlake. We covered that in his podcast conversation. But I want to learn about your Harvard Westlake experience when you came to the school, not only what the experience was like generally, but whether there were people at the school including someone maybe like Coach Hilliard, who influenced you as a coach now that you are a coach professionally yourself. My experience at Harvard Westlake was incredible. Yeah, I was overwhelmed with uh, just the beauty of the campus, the, how nice everybody was, how supportive everyone was. For me specifically, in learning the game of basketball, having Coach Hilliard, Coach Besky as well, Coach Wolf, uh, Coach Gomez, all, all, the, all the guys that I had, who helped develop me into the player that I would become really started with the X's and O's and the fundamentals. But any person will tell you that the meaningful coaches that you've had in your life, it comes down to relationships. And mm. so with Coach Hayard, it was just the conversations we'd have about life and just listening and learning from him about his temperament, never too high, never too low, um, was something that was very big to him and something that I try to do even to this day, never too high, never too low on wins and losses. You just want to keep it steady so that you can always move forward into the next day and try to win, win the day, win the next day. Winning the next day is your preparation as far as like, did you get a good weight session in? Did you watch film? Did you recover if, if you needed rest? Whatever it is to win the next day so that you could continue to progress. And it was also very special, obviously, I could experience that with my brother. Yeah. Um, at Harvard Westlake and um, the supportive friends and relationships that I still have to this day. Um, some of my closest friends are, are guys I went to school with there at Harvard Westlake. So just a very special time, very special place. So at Harvard Westlake, you know, obviously when we talked to Jason, he was having a slightly different experience than you were, but you probably didn't know it at the time. <laughs> Right. I mean, he. That's about the understatement. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, here we are. You're the Collins twins. You guys are winning state championships. You're McDonald's All Americans. Everything's going great. And at the time, looking back, I guess in hindsight, yeah. uh, were there signs that Jason, who was a closeted gay man at the time, was sort of dealing with that internal turmoil, or did you not see it at all? I did not see it at all. So obviously my, my brother, and he's so great at articulating his own story and his own truth and um, yeah. the power that comes from that. But from my perspective, I had no idea that my brother was um, was living in the closet and, and dealing with that for such a long time, even going back to high school. Um, right. It's unfortunate in that my brother, um, that he, he, he but I, I get it. It's, 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 his own, it's his own truth to tell and to share. Sure. But I, there's part of me that wished that he did tell me sooner 
because I, I would have been right there as always to support them and love them um, yeah. regardless. But at the end of the day, everybody has to come out if they do choose to come out on their own terms and, and when they're ready. My brother just wasn't ready at the time. So part of you kind of goes, gosh, why we're so close. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're twin brothers. We're as, as close as two people could be. Why couldn't he have just told me? But at the same time, you realize that that's, that's, not, that's not my decision. That, that's his. That, that's not my decision. That's his decision. And that's his journey. That's his life. Um, and I respect that. But um, he, he knows and he knows now, of course, that my love for my brother is, is always there and my support for him. Yeah. And he brought that up in, in his episode, which I think we'll, we'll get to later. So after Harvard Westlake, you both, you and Jason both go to Stanford. And uh, I know you had a coach there as well, uh, Mike Montgomery. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his influence, where it may have kind of differed from Coach Hilliard, or what are the things you think about when you think about him as a coach? For Mike Montgomery and, and for Stanford, those days, really special because of the bonds that we formed as a brotherhood within our, our basketball department. Again, we spend so much time with each other. You know, I'm talking about this. back in the day, we had three-hour practices. And, you know, I, wow. I don't even know if I could come up with a three-hour practice plan right now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but what Mike was really good about was establishing and developing a program. And what I mean by that was everybody understood what was expected of them, their roles on the team, their roles within the program as far as mentorship. He was a big believer on team captains and the captains uh, sharing the responsibility from the leadership standpoint. So everybody kind of slid into their role and their responsibility within the unit. And again, it was someone who was very fundamental with the X's and O's, someone who made sure that we were all connected, all on the same page. We were all pulling for one another. And that's something that I've, I've, my brother and I have always prided ourselves throughout our playing career. It wasn't necessarily about the accolades that my brother and I got because we wanted to win championships. We want to have team success. And so whether it was at Harvard Westlake winning state championships or at Stanford, we were being fortunate enough to be a part of teams that won, you know, the Pac-10, now Pac-12, getting an opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament, going right. to the Final Four, all of those things, all those experiences. That's what mattered to us um, was our team success. There's an expression that it, it's amazing what you can get accomplished when nobody cares who gets the credit. And that's kind of the, the, the team ethos and, or mantra that we kind of live by. That's what Mike Montgomery did. Uh, everybody understood that this was about the team and the program. And you were important while you're here, but you need to pass it down to the next person, the next coming class. And that's the way that you keep building a program in college basketball at that time. It does remind me a little bit of the Warriors in a way. I mean, the team first mentality, that team was praised for having obviously these huge, I'm going to use the word superstar players, uh, Steph Curry. There was probably no one more popular in the NBA during that period, maybe still than Steph Curry. Yet they seemed to play a brand of basketball that was very team first. That was something that I think Kevin Durant, when he came to the team, seemed to really appreciate uh, yeah. about the Warriors. Was that something you feel like was carried through to success with that team? Even to this day, that's something that, that we preach here in New Orleans. And going back yeah. to the, the Golden State days, it's something called uh, 0.5 basketball. And hmm. you dribble it, <laughs> you pass it, or you shoot it in 0.5. So you make quick decisions, and it encourages ah. ball movement. When the ball moves and it's what we call it sticks, 
and then all of a sudden somebody starts dribbling it and dribbling it and dribbling it. Well, you got four yep. other players standing on the court watching that person just massage the basketball in their hand. And if you have a superstar player, yes, that's that can work, especially you know later in the playoffs when defenses get tougher and you need individual brilliance to step up and make shots. But over the course of a season, we want the ball to move. It just everybody feels a part of it. Yeah. And another thing, we one of our principles too, and still the same, is joy. Um, playing with joy um, mm. because mm. you know how lucky are we that we get to play in this league, play a game that we love, and share it with the world. So that's something that we definitely enjoy doing and showing our joy when playing basketball. So out of Stanford, both you and Jason get drafted into the NBA. You were a second round pick by the Utah Jazz. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your jazz experience because you stayed with that franchise uncharacteristically yeah. for a very long time uh, yeah. after being drafted really under one coach, Jerry Sloan. So I'm curious if you could just talk about your NBA experience, particularly with the jazz and with coach Sloan. <laughs> so it's a longer story, but I'll try to tell you the five second version, but I, I, sure. I got drafted in the second round. My brother was drafted in the first round. Draft day, very exciting time for our family. Obviously, the opportunity to have two people from the same household drafted is incredible. So my brother gets drafted in the first round. I believe he was the 18th pick. And then 19, 20. Names keep going, keep getting called. And eventually, I'm sitting there in the late second round, and I get drafted. While I'm excited that I get drafted, I was pissed because I was yeah. sitting there for, I don't know, probably an hour, maybe more so, knowing that guys were taken ahead of me that I felt that I was better than. And my brother, that I know that I'm better than, was drafted <laughs> in 18. So um, I came into the league with a chip on my shoulder, um, yeah. and, and which helped fuel me for my opportunity in Utah. So when Coach Sloan got an opportunity to see me, he told me that I needed to lose 20 pounds. He said that I was, um, you know, a lot of, you know, baby fat still, and I needed to lose 20 pounds. So when I, that was in July, and I played summer league, and he said, I need to get in the best shape of my life, lose 20 pounds. When I came back in that September, that's exactly what I had done. So when, when the season was in about a month and a half, when at the end of September for training camp, I had lost 20 pounds, my body fat, I was as fit as I'd ever been. And without saying a word, just by showing up in that great of shape, I showed Coach Sloan that this kid was willing to listen, that this kid was committed, that he was willing to sacrifice and do what I asked him to do. And that was just before we even played the first day of practice. Yeah. And so whatever he asked me to do, whatever he told me to do, I was going to do. I was, I was a dog out there. I was physical. Um, I was diving on the ball for every loose ball. And you have to understand, too, my team had just lost in the finals the year before when I got there. So I had a, you talk about a veteran team. I mean, my veterans were Carl Malone, and John Stockton and John Starks and Danielle Marshall and Greg Ostertag, Brian Russell, all these yeah. like guys who have been in the league for a really long time. And I'm this young pup and I got to show <laughs> that, I, that I was willing to work and that I was willing to do all the dirty work so that they, so I could make, make their jobs easier. So if it was setting hard screens, flopping, charging, whatever it needed to do, all that dirty work I, I was, I, I did. And so much about being in the NBA is about finding your niche because 
everybody in the NBA is talented. If you said, hey, we're going to go play one-on-one, just you and me right now, I like my chances, even as an older man right now. Um, <laughs> I like your chances that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having said that, everybody has talent, but you got to find what works for you in the league. So you got to find that niche. And for my brother and myself, it was the same role. It was a physical screener, rebounder. Somebody needed a hard foul. We were there to yeah. give it. You know, you know, we had to give up our body for whatever reason, for charges or that was our job and that was our niche at the time. And so I did that with pleasure <laughs> and coach appreciated that because yeah. Jerry Sloan, a former, you know, Hall of Fame player and who's a tough nosed guy. He liked the way that I competed and the way that I could follow a game plan. I could execute a game plan. If you say, hey, we're doing this in, in the walkthrough, you'd be surprised how many people can't execute a game plan going into the game. And I could do that. And that gave me an opportunity to be successful. So for, for Jerry Sloan, it was an easy transition for me going from Mike Montgomery, an old school coach, to Jerry Sloan, yet again, another old school coach in terms of working hard, being there on time, being punctual, just the, the little things, always having your shirt tucked in, just little things like that, that really went a long way with uh, playing for Coach Sloan and playing in, in Utah. Do you find that with rookies, because you came in as a rookie and he said, you got to lose 20 pounds, you got to get in shape. Do you find mm -hmm. that kind of directness around expectations is particularly helpful with a rookie to sort of from the from the very start kind of being very clear about what's what's expected? Whereas if you're a veteran, obviously you still have to be firm and 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 yeah. but but there's there's more finesse involved when you're dealing with a vet. Absolutely. Because yeah. you're still learning what it is to be a pro. Right. So well, how do you how do you lose 20 pounds in a month and a half? Well, you got to be very strict with your time management. You got to be very strict with your diet. Yeah. Um, you got to be very strict with your workouts. For me, I learned very quickly what it is to be a pro. And I, as I said, it, it helped immensely that the guys on my team, my veterans, had been doing it a really long time. And Daniel Marshall in particular took me under his wing. Having those guys as my examples really helped me um, as a young player um, in this league. So you have about a 10-year NBA career, which especially for a second-round pick mm -hmm. is very impressive. And you end up staying with the, the Jazz the majority of that career. Mm -hmm. When you retired about 10 years later, did you know you wanted to go into coaching or did it take you a couple of years to figure that out? I, I knew I wanted to stay around basketball. It's what I know. Yeah. It's what I love. I have a true passion for so I knew I wanted to stay around basketball, and I just didn't know in what capacity. So the first opportunity that came to me was uh, broadcasting. And so yeah. immediately after playing, I had an opportunity to broadcast some games for the WCC, Loyola Marymount, Pepperdine. Then from there, I ended up doing some stuff for the Pac-10 network. Um, no, it was the Pac-12 network at the time. So I called some games for them as well. And then I knew I wanted to try to get back into the NBA. And... This is where it comes down to friendships and relationships and doing what you can to get your foot in the door. So I reached out to a person named Gerald Matkins, and his wife actually works at Harbor Westlake. Is that <laughs> so right? That, yes. So Gerald Matkins at the time was with the Clippers. And he's a UCLA guy, even though I'm a Stanford guy. There, you know, I, I've been going to UCLA games for a long time, and I knew a lot yeah. of guys at UCLA, small circles, small networks. And... I just reached out to him and said, hey, is there anything I could do to get my foot in the door? And 
thank God he said yes. And what he ended up doing was giving me an opportunity to go into scouting. And so I became a pro personnel scout. There's no pay involved. And sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta start at the bottom and just work your way up. And what ended up happening was because I went to every Clippers and every Lakers home game at the time, my children were very young. I didn't really want to travel as much. And this was the perfect opportunity for me because all I had to do was go down to at the time, Staples Center, not that very long of a commute, but I was able to maintain the relationships within the NBA. You know, I was there scouting. I'd get to the game, a seven o'clock game. I'd get there at four o'clock. I'd see the uh, assistant coaches. I'd see the young players and for all the teams that were coming through. And what ended up happening was one of the um, teams that came through were the Warriors um, when they were playing the Clippers. And it goes back to relationships and all that stuff. But Bob Myers, who was my agent for many years, had now moved on to an executive position with the Warriors. He saw me there scouting, said, oh, you're, this is what you're interested in doing. And so we had a conversations that way, to start, just to mm-hmm. start the conversation. And then going back to my playing days, towards the end of my career, one of my last stops was in Phoenix when uh, the GM at the time was Steve Kerr. And right. the head coach at the time was Alvin Gentry. And when Steve came time to him putting together his staff, he said, Who, who's a young big, a young big guy who could still work with and get, on, get out there on the floor, but help mentor some of our younger bigs um, in the league. And my relationship with Steve, my relationship with Bob, it all kind of came together there. And they called me out of the clear blue and asked if I was interested in getting into coaching. And thank God I said yes. And thank God they gave me the opportunity because that first year, it was just, it happened just that quick where that first year win a championship and and you just kidding. And now I'm I'm on my, I'm on my path. Um, I'm on my journey. Again, it it always goes back to the relationships and how you handle yourself, how you take care of your business. And, And again, I'm very thankful for those opportunities that were given to me that I was able to make the most of. So then you're, you're working with Steve Kerr. With the Golden State Warriors, you guys win three championships during that span. I want to get to the players as well, but first, Steve Kerr. Obviously, you worked with him for many years, well-respected player, uh, was, I think, a broadcaster, uh, had done some front office work, and became a coach. What did you learn from Steve? What are the things that stand out from working with Steve Kerr? Wow, Um, so much. Um, Honestly, Steve is... And I, I don't say this lightly because I, I know how the type of academic environments I've been in with being there at Harvard Westlake, being there at Stanford. But yeah. Steve is probably one of the smartest people I've ever been around. His whole family, and I know people probably know his background a little bit, but his family comes from academia. His, his brother is a professor. His sister teaches as well. His mom hosts, uh, I believe, Albright students or... Yeah, so so he, he his dad was a university president, I believe. University president, absolutely in Be- in Beirut. So someone who is well traveled and as smart as there is. So just learning from him about life. Um, forget the basketball yeah. stuff, but just about life right. and, and how to connect with people. Watching him connect with people. One of the most important things you got to be able to do as a coach, and especially as the head coach, is message. Um, yeah. You've got to be able to come in and deliver the message on a daily basis. And you message to the group, you're messaging to ownership, you're messaging to the media, 
And so just watching Steve and the way that he went about doing that, I learned so much uh, from him in, in those moments, in addition to the X's and O's and being prepared, having your principles, developing your program and so that you can have, you have your foundation so you can develop your program, you can develop your team culture that sets you up for success. So all of those things I, I learned from, uh, from my time in Golden State and, and working with Steve. Curious being the kind of on the defensive side of the ball there as an assistant head coach. I'm curious about working with Draymond Green. Uh, he's someone that I think as a fan just looks like such a vocal leader, kind of an antagonist. Feels like someone you love when they're on your team, you probably hate when they're on the, the opposition team. Uh, yeah. But one of the best defensive players in the NBA, hands down, yeah. over the last 10 years. Can you talk a little bit about working with Draymond, his approach to defense and the role he played on that team that you were a part of? He's the ultimate disruptor of your mm. defense. Uh, I mean, mm. of, of an opposing team's offense. Because of his versatility, uh, he's one of the very few guys in the league who could defend the point guard on one possession and on the back end of the same possession, defend the other team's center um, hmm. because of his versatility, his athleticism, his strength, and then his IQ. So yeah. absolute pleasure to work with, to learn from. And then the one thing that comes up with Draymond, and it's, it's very unique, is that because he's so skilled and, and can diagnose plays, that he'll make a read. So you'll have defensive principles in place that if the ball is driven this way, then we know that the bottom guy is going to go over and rotate, and then we're going to sink on the backside, and then we're going to fill and all this. Well, Draymond can see the action go, and he's just going to go blow it up. He's just going to go disrupt <laughs> the offense. So then you can have, you have your principles in place, yes, but then there becomes a point where the other guys on the court, you better read what he's going to do because he's yeah. going to go be disruptive, and you got to cover his back. But again, he's a very cerebral basketball player, someone on, on both sides of the floor. He just has such a tremendous understanding of the game. But from a defensive perspective, that um, what we call ATOs, after timeout plays, he watches a ton of film and he'll yeah. know what's coming just by your positioning, by the way you're standing coming out of a timeout. And he's someone that you have to account for defensively because he'll disrupt plays and cause havoc out there with his uh, defensive acumen. And then Steph Curry. I mean, I know he's known for his offense. He is now known maybe as the greatest shooter of all time. I'm curious, mm -hmm. coming from the season where you started watching him grow, not only as a player, but becoming now people view him as one of the greatest players of all time at this point. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how Steph kind of handled that pressure, not just on the basketball court, but the type of kind of fame that that brought, not just the team, but him personally? Steph is probably the most humble superstar I've ever been around. Um, hmm. Don't let the smile fool you. He, he, yeah. wants to, <laughs> he wants to destroy you out there on the court, <laughs> but he is one of the nicest people you could, ever, you could possibly be around for a superstar. The ego that sometimes comes with that, he is extremely humble, just a, a great person. As far as his basketball goes, there's no secret to why he's successful. It's the amount of work that he puts in on a daily basis. There's an expression, gym rat, guys who just love to be in the gym and getting their, his routine. He's a very efficient with his routine, but he gets his shots up and all the stuff that he's able to do out there, 
he works on that stuff from the ball handling to the creativity with his finishing to just being a um, knockdown lights out shooter all that stuff he continues to work on on a daily basis so his work ethic is second to none and really being around all those guys from Steph to Kevin Durant to Clay Thompson there's no secret to why they are all so skilled and so successful it's the amount of work that they put in yeah. on a daily yeah. basis working on their craft and all of them now at this stage in their career they're just so efficient with their work with their reps you learn a lot just by watching how they approach their practices yeah um so Steph you know every, every accolade he's he's earned he's put the work in for it and um, he's had a tremendous career and I've I've been in gyms where he's gone over a hundred consecutive threes so there, there really is no surprise that you know he's you're good at shooting threes that guy over there he's better so i want to step back a little bit because right before you took that job with the gold state warriors was sort of the moment that was big in the collins family and particularly for your twin brother jason is that he came out he came out to you privately uh mm -hmm. then he came out to the world publicly and in talking about him coming out to you, I actually want to play a snippet from his interview on the supporting cast. I remember when I told my brother that I was gay, and he was like, are you sure? This is your twin brother. Yeah, my, my twin Jaren. brother, Jaron. Yeah. But he was like, are you sure you're gay? And I was like, yes. Are you sure you're straight? And then he was like, how do you know? And he was like, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> you just know right, kind right. of thing. <laughs> yes. Anyways, does that sound right? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. We look back on that, and this stupidity of the moment for me like <laughs> our brother's telling me he's gay and i'm like are you sure because in my mind i'm thinking about my brother who i we spent our entire lives together um obviously this is much you know we went our separate ways and um and when we got to the pros and he was living in new jersey and i was in utah but yeah. i had no idea that he was um, living in the closet. So I just asked, wait, wait, are you sure? And he's like, you realize how stupid of a question that is. And I'm like, oh, 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 yeah, you're right. <laughs> and where and when did this take place? So he told me, uh, he came over to my house and sat me down. And so that's something important I want to tell you. And he came out to me. So this is in my house and I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, give or take. He was just slowly coming out in the, in the process of coming out to different family members. And he wanted to do it on his own terms, so he wanted to do it one by one. But I was I was one of the first people that he that he came out to, and then from there, um, it was just about just giving him love and support, and just relationship doesn't change. We're brothers. Um, if anything, I, I may may have become a little bit more protective of him, whereas he wanted to be. And I never really looked at it this way when we were growing up, but because he's eight minutes older. Like, but he's, he's the big brother and I, I, I'm, you're not my big, you know, we're twins, you're blacks, <laughs> but he did have that kind of stoic presence as, as the big brother per se. Here's a little bit of him talking about that one second. older than Jaren or is Jaren technically? eight minutes older. Eight minutes older yeah, than Jaren. Yes, eight minutes older. And I, I definitely felt like the bigger brother also because I was just, yes, we're twins and I think we're identical. We don't know for yeah. sure. Um, but I was always naturally just a little bit bigger, like a bigger frame. Mm -hmm. So I always felt like I was the bigger brother. Hmm. And, um, 
and had to like sort of protect him kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was so weird. But, yeah. But um, I will say that that role reversed when I, you know, came out and then sort of he became like the protector and had to huh. uh, speak up for me kind of thing. And, and what did, he felt that. What yeah. did that mean to you? It's incredible to see uh, the support of your sibling, I think, and your parents and, you know, and your family. But it, um, there's something special about the, the sibling bond. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jaron has been, has become, he's a, a, a huge ally. And, yeah. Um, but it's been really cool to see. You know, your brother yeah. talks about you being kind of an ally. Mm-hmm. Uh, what responsibility, obviously you felt that responsibility to your brother in that moment. Mm-hmm. And he talked about it, that he felt it. You must feel proud about that. What did you feel like your responsibility was broader than your brother to be put into this situation as, as he said it, as sort of a, of an ally? So um, I think as we all go through life, we gain different experiences. And for me particularly, um, I gained a new lens and a way to see the world in that moment going forward with my brother coming out. And the story that comes to mind is this is when I was with a member of the Warriors and we were playing a game in, on the East Coast, and a team had uh, the kiss cam up. And I'm sure we've all been to, a, to sporting events sure. and the kiss cam. And, you know, they, they're in the crowd, and, and they're flashing the people. And then they flash to two players. I'm just, just by half this is on the road, and I just happen to be looking up, and I see two players of, of our team being put up on the kiss cam. And... Had my brother not come out, I don't know that I would have looked at it through this lens of that I that I had now, where I'm looking yeah. up at that and I'm saying if that if they had put my brother up on a big screen and everybody was snickering and kind of laughing at the idea of two men kissing and oh just kind of teasing with the announcer and that sort of thing, so I got pissed off and um yeah. and i got i got really upset and long story short game's over we ended up winning the game thank god <laughs> and our <laughs> team goes in the back and i go straight to the announcer and I, and I know how things work in the nba arena and i said i want to speak to your head of in arena entertainment get that person down here right now and mm. the announcer was like why what, what do you mean I said, get that person right. And I, I, I used language that was very strong. And I read the riot act to the announcer and to the head of in arena operations right there in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at me because they didn't grasp what they had done. Um, right. And so for me, I was angry. I was thinking about the only thing I was thinking about was my brother in that moment. Yeah. Like, what if they yeah. put him up on the stage? So I was pissed. And so when I did that and come to find out my brother who now works for the NBA and has conversations with Adam Silver and Kathy Barons and people who are in positions to affect change immediately, that has not happened and will not happen ever again going forward in any, any NBA arena. They will not do that. And it came from that moment. But yeah. one thing that was important for me that was like, did I overreact or did I, did I do this or that? You know, and I saw, so I talked to my brother about this and this is, you know, many years ago. So then years later, this is years later, maybe like two years later, two or three years later, I'm at an all-star event. Um, we had the number one seed. So I was fortunate enough to coach the all-star game mm-hmm. and an executive from that team who 
was a member of the LGBTQ community, came up to me and my brother and thanked me for saying something because mm. they felt uncomfortable. This is an executive with that organization, but wow. they felt uncomfortable saying something for a, a various amount of reasons, but they were thankful that I stepped up and said something so that that didn't happen again and, and will not happen again. So I think that yeah. it's important for me as an ally to recognize moments where we can affect behavior, we can affect people's mindsets, hopefully in a positive manner moving forward so that we move the needle as a society forward. And so that it gets to a point where it's no big deal. Let, let, let people live their lives. It has nothing to do with yeah. you. Just let people live their lives, let people live their truths and be happy with who they are. I wonder if, you know, Steve Kerr, you mentioned working with Coach Kerr, you mentioned he's one of the smartest guys you've ever worked with. Another thing that's unique is that he stands on his principles apart from basketball sometimes, mm -hmm. right? He has spoken publicly about issues of gun violence, for example, in ways that most head coaches do not. Yeah. Um, obviously, that is something that's personal to him. His father was murdered, uh, assassinated, yeah. Yeah. Uh, murdered by a gun. And so it's very personal to him, as this issue is personal to you and your family. Is that one of the things you've taken, not just from your, your relationship with your brother and wanting to, to stick up for people like your brother, but also something you learned from Coach Kerr? Yeah, just the, the moment to that we have platforms, that we do have a platform, right. and what you do with the platform matters. All of our players, especially with social justice issues that have come up recently, um, as long as somebody is speaking from a place of truth, as long as they're speaking with their heart, they're informed on whatever they're speaking on, it can be powerful and it can help move things and move our society as a whole. Whether we're talking about gun violence or LGBTQ, um, we're talking about social justice issues, whatever it may be, we have to try to use our platforms and in, in, in our power and our voice in the right manner. And that's something that I definitely learned being there with uh, Coach Kerr. So before we go, Jaron, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. I know you're not in LA now, but you return here frequently and are here in the off season. LA is known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So starting with the first, what is Jaron Collins' favorite movie? I would say uh, Black Panther. I'd say Black Panther. Wakanda Forever. Mm. The original one. The, the, the one that recently came out or the original? The original. The original one. Yes. I mean, I love that one because I was able to uh, watch that one with my children and they mm. absolutely loved it. So I would definitely say that one. When you are back in LA, what is your favorite meal here? Either something you and Elsa have at home or uh, a restaurant that you love to go to when you're back in LA? So many different restaurants, but I got to give my, uh, got to give my guy a, a shout out. Uh, we're going to say nice guy. Oh, nice guy. Yeah. John Terzian. Right? Is that his place? Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite place in LA? I'd say my home. <laughs> I get yeah. there so infrequently. <laughs> um, outside of the house, I'd say Santa Monica Beach, somewhere like that. Yeah. yeah. You can go to the beach, go to the pier, get outside, take advantage of the weather, do something that's very SoCal, hang out. Last question. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you are the parent of three kids, as I know. Mm -hmm. uh, I am the parent of two daughters. I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, so much littler than your kids. The last question is, what is your best parenting advice? Either uh, something that is your own or something that is passed along to you. I, I don't know if there are pr is a principle of coaching that can be applied to good <laughs> parenting. What kind of comes to mind in, in me thinking about how to be a, a better dad? Gosh, great question. Um, I think, and, and it does relate to coaching a little bit in that mm -hmm. all of our children have such dynamic personalities. Even when they're so young, you can see their personality starting to develop. And then who needs to be pushed? Who needs to be hugged? And when is the appropriate time to do both? <laughs> um, <laughs> so there, there are moments, yeah. uh, and, it's, and you think back to your own childhood, whether there's a situation where, you know, your parents said, no, you're going to go do that. No, you, you got to figure it out. And then there, there are those moments where something happens and you maybe acquired a moment, you need a hug and finding those moments. That, I think that would be my, 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 my advice is just we, we have to push our children to be the best versions of themselves and while they're learning and exploring and, and growing in life. And then we have to be there to support them as well with, yeah. with, with hugs and words. And we all want the best for our children and we want them to be productive young adults and adults and, and have the foundation that they need and the tools that they need to be successful in life. And so it's just those moments where they got to do it themselves and when we, when we need to help them, when we need to hug them. Well said. So Jaron Collins, thank you so much for joining the supporting cast. Thank you for all you're doing as an ally beyond basketball and uh, everything you're doing for the New Orleans Pelicans and for Harvard Westlake. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.